even when the chips are down To win her over, I'd see the tables turn around She's ten the hard way, I can feel it in my bones She'll be making my day, not another night alone Well, it's time for a windfall, not a single minute too soon Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club, and we're here. We're going to start um, Philip K. Dick's first novel, Solar Lottery. Uh, I realize I'm doing this a little bit earlier than chronological order. Um, one reason to for that is, you know, there's so many stories before 1955 and the publication of Solar Lottery. Um, I thought I just wanted to mix things up a little bit. You know, I haven't. I've reviewed most of the stories before on my blog. Um, but I haven't really looked at the novels there, so I wanted to get some kind of more fresh material, material I haven't like thought through before. So that's one reason I do it. I will get back to the stories, and you know, eventually we'll be back to chronological order when there's not as many stories. It's just that first two years of Dick's career, there's dozens and dozens of stories. I think over half of the stories he wrote came out were published in essentially two years, and that that's a lot to get through. So. Um, I just want to change things up a little bit, talk about a novel, um, and see how that goes. Um, I think it's a really politically relevant novel, too, and I, I, I've just been itching to get into it. Um, now, how to do these novels? Um, well, I've been doing the stories a story at a time, and I guess I could do these a chapter at a time, but I think that'd be a little too odious. Um, now, my, my main podcast is based on the concept of 100 pages at a time. Uh, I'm not doing the Philip K. Dick works that way, but that was one way I could approach these stories. But at the pace I've been looking at the stories, I don't think 100 pages at a time would work as well because I've gone a lot more detail in this blog or this podcast than I have in the, the main 100 pages cast. So that may not work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot for maybe three or four chapters per episode or, or maybe aim for four, five, six um, episodes per book. It, it may I may go slower or faster um, depending on how I feel at any one time. But for now, I'm going to try to do Solar Lottery at three chapters per episode and see how it goes. Now, Philip Dick's novels are usually quite intimate with a small cast of scare characters, but there's usually a larger cast of passing or minor characters. Um, and sometimes that's true with ideas too. Like there might be a core idea and then a lot of marginal ideas that pop around. Uh, Dick liked to throw a lot of ideas into his novels and they don't always line up as well. Sometimes there's overlapping plots that seem disconnected but have thematic overlays, overlaps. Sometimes they're just loose plot connections. Um, some novels like The Simulacrum, uh, really kind of fall into this trap of, of really having these overlapping plots that don't tie together very well. Um, he usually spent early chapters setting up characters and setting um, and then kind of focused later on on plot. Now Dick wrote 40-some novels and each has a distinctive political and social setting. He's not a world builder. He's not, there's not like one single Philip K. Dick world that um, we can investigate. I'm curious to see what the, what the TV series is going to do. Is it going to be a pure anthology or is there going to be a bit of world building going on there? I'd like to actually see a little bit of world building, but, you know, outside of some Easter eggs, there's really not that much thread connecting these. I, the, you know, there's the novel 
we can build you, which certainly is connected to do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep through a robotics company. Uh, and certainly there's robots, robot styles that, that feed throughout, but each novel kind of stands on its own. He likes to throw out a lot of ideas, a lot of possible worlds. He never lets one world incubate for too long. Uh, and in fact, the reason for this is I think the world he's building is actually our own. He's actually building our world, but it's all metaphorical and symbolic. Solar Lottery was published in 1955. Dick often gets criticized for recycling ideas from his stories into his novels. And this is sometimes true, um, but that's not the case with Solar Lottery, which is pretty original. In fact, I'd say there's not that many stories in which Dick can be accused of recycling ideas. Um, a dozen, maybe? Ideas from his stories end up in his novels. His novels are all pretty much our new ideas. Uh, although there might be concepts here and there that are that are borrowed. It's not that common. And even when he does, like in The Defenders and The Penultimate Truth, it's really so shallow. There, there's not that. They're really different concepts entirely. Just, just the idea of humans in bunkers is the only thing that really are shared in those stories. So in this episode, I'm going to try to lay out the social, economic, political situation in this novel, Solar Lottery. Humans are living in all nine planets of the solar system. The total population is around 6 billion. So, I mean, this is before the demographic boom of the post-World War II era, obviously, to predict 6 billion in nine planets is a bit conservative, looking at current po population trajectories for the Earth. But superstition is the dominant religion of all humans due to the triumph of the philosophy of Minimax. Now, while that may sound like Orwellian newspeak when we first read it, it is, in fact, not from that at all. It's actually a form of popular game theory from Dick's time, and I'll, I'll get back and I'll discuss it in a little bit. The world is essentially divided up into the UNKS, U-N-K-S, which are people who kind of lack title and lack professional positions, and those who have professional positions, those who have kind of jobs, essentially. So the... The, you have kind of like the middle and upper class and then everyone else. And the unks are essentially unclassified individuals. That's where the name comes from. The unks means unclassified. Unclassified means they don't have a role in society. If you've watched Futurama, you can think of the bureaucrats who all have kind of an official title and status. It's perhaps a bit like that. Most people, though, are lacking any official position. This is how people in this society deal with the problem of post-scarcity. The problem of post-scarcity is one of the central concepts and problems in Philip K. Dick's writing, um, or one of the problems he addresses anyways. The problem of post-scarcity is essentially what do you do when productive capacity is so great and automation has reached such a point that people are no longer necessary as production agents anymore, right? When there's essentially not enough work to go around, what happens? Well, essentially, you have a situation where few people with work or with a, a role in society that's compensated by the market have all the wealth. And most people really have no possibility of even getting into this, into, into getting jobs. In some stories, this is exacerbated by age extending technologies like in the Kraken space. But generally, Dick worries about post-scarcity because it will mean people can't be workers. People can't work. People can't be creative or productive anymore. In a sense, Dick is quite Marxist in, in seeing that there's a role for humanity as builders, as makers. So we have textual evidence for this. Quote, 
In the early 20th century, the problem of production had been solved. After that, it was the problem of consumption that plagued society. Sorry, did I say it wrong? In the early 20th century, the problem of production was solved. After that, it was the problem of consumption that plagued society. In the 1950s and 1960s, consumer commodities and farm products began to pile up in towering mountains all over the Western world. As much as possible was given away, but that threatened to subvert the open market. By 1980, the pro-term solution, pro-tem solution was to hang up the products and burn them, billions of dollars worth, week after week. Each Saturday, townspeople had collected in sullen, resentful crowds to watch the troops squirt gasoline on the cars and toasters and clothes and oranges and coffee and cigarettes that nobody could buy, igniting them in blinding conflagration. In each town, there was a burning place, fenced off, a kind of rubbish and ash heap where the fine things that could not be purchased were systematically destroyed. End quote. Um, so really an important concept. Uh, we have a bit of this in like zap gun where you have this idea of weapons being developed only to be plowshared, but there they become consumer goods that people use here. Things are just destroyed. Now, obviously in Dick's mind is probably the great depression when you had milk being thrown out and crops burned because no one could buy it. Right. You, yeah. You had productive capacity was fine. America was producing just fine, but no one could buy because wages were too low and you had such great inequality. This is really got a problem we're going to have to face where we can produce so much with so few people that there's going to be a, a mic-match between demand and production, right? I, I guess I, I kind of come up politically here, but supply-side economics really doesn't solve the fundamental problem of, of demand, right? You've, you can promote production all you want, but if you don't have people who can buy, it doesn't really do us any good. Um, now, Dick is really good on this topic, I think, of, of post-scarcity, work, overproduction, and what it means for, for us in the future. Both individually, like what does it mean to be a human when we can't work, when we don't have a place, when we're kipple, or essentially human kipple, and then just more economically and systemically, what does it mean? Dick's twist on this is that the classification of people is determined randomly and through quizzes. The entire system is based on randomness, even at the top. At the very top of the system is the quiz master. At birth, everyone gets a so-called P card, which puts them in the lottery for being the quiz master. Most people sell these for a few bucks because the chances of being chosen is one in whatever, six billion. So no one puts much value in it. So they usually will sell it for a few bucks. So some people speculate on P cards. Uh, most unks don't keep them. Most unks sell those. People with jobs can keep them because they're not worth that much. So this keeps unks from being serious contenders for the quiz master. So it's not a pure fair lottery um, in that everyone has an equal chance. It's actually those who own the P cars that have the greatest chance. This helps keep the corrupt and ambitious from being on top. That's the idea of, of the randomness of it. If it's random, the corrupt and ambitious won't be on top. But in fact, it doesn't quite work because people can speculate on and buy up these P cards. Well, what do you do about the incompetent, right? Though the incompetent could still be chosen as a master, and you don't want that either, right? Well, this is where the challenger system enters into the, the situation. As soon as a new quiz master is determined, a challenge is issued. At any one time, there is a le legal, legitimate assassin that, that can kill one person who's the quiz master. The quiz master... Um, who cannot command a security state or cannot get his security apparatus in order is quickly assassinated and a new selection is made from the bottle. 
the bottle is of just a massive computer that determines who the quiz master will be. And to keep the quiz master secure, teeps are used, basically people with telep telepathy, and an entire massive security state is put into force. So again, to recap, the corrupt are kept out by r the randomness of the system, and the incompetent are kept out because they'll be assassinated within a few days, literally, usually. Um, they, at some point in the novel, they give the life expectancy for quiz masters, and it's really just days. So luck is at the heart of the system. Everyone wears charms. Everyone follows portents. And in fact, our opening scene is these like lucky portents or unlucky portents, omens. So we got a very kind of medieval concept of, you know, this idea that lucky charms work. People wear, have all kinds of weird lucky charms. I think one is like a bottle of virgin's milk. So there's... Um, a host of these and a lot of them I think Dick gets from the Middle Ages. Dick was a very much a fan of the Middle Ages and particularly the early modern both musically and in terms of culture and society. Um, I, I think his ideal society would have been something kind of late medieval or, or early modern. The professional classes and pretty much all employment exists as replicas of feudalism. The largest corporations are called hills and there's just a handful of them. People bind themselves into feudal obligations with either hills, kind of corporations, or through ind or with individuals, and you can do it either way you want. Those outside of fealty risk getting thrust into the ranks of the unclassified. So, having a classification, having a job, also means having a feudal obligation to someone. Now, most people will pledge themselves to hills, but some people also will pledge themselves to individuals. Therefore, it's better to be a slave or to be a serf than not to be exploited at all. Right, and that's the central conceit of this novel. The geographical center of this entire system is Batavia. Quote, all roads and space lanes lead to Batavia. End quote. This harkens back to the Dutch Empire, where, of course, at one short period of time, the center of the world system was Amsterdam and, and Batavia in the East Indies. The, we were reminded of the reign of the Dutch East India Company. So is he trying to say we have kind of a commercial empire here? Um, perhaps. Almost all relationships are hierarchical or commercial. We see this early on when our main character, Bentley, hires a prostitute from the, quote, local bed girl agency. Uh, so uh, there's a kind of this casual sexualized relationships uh, in, in the story. Prostitution is pretty common and normal. Um, and we assume the prostitutes are also in feudal, uh, quasi unfree feudal relationships with their agencies. Later, he's told, quote, they're always buying and selling biochemists when he's looking for a job because he's a biochemist. The randomness of the system seems to be based on the idea that no one can feel exploited or disgruntled because of the randomness of everything. In the opening pages, our main character is fired, in fact. And so let's read that first page. There had been harbingers early in May 20, 2203. 2203. Okay. Early in May 2203, news machines were excited by a flight of white crows over Sweden. A series of unexplained fires demolished half of Oswilier Hill, a basic industrial pivot of the system. Small round stones fell near the work camp installations on Mars. At Batavia, the directorate of the Nine Planet Federation, a two-headed jersey calf was born, a certain sign that something of incredible magnitude was brewing. Everybody interpreted these signs according to their own formula. Speculation on what random forces of nature intended was a favorite pastime. Everybody guessed, consulted, and argued about the bottle, the socialized instrument of chance. Directorate fortune tellers were 
booked up for weeks in advance. But one man's harbinger was another man's event. The first reaction from the Oswilier Hill to its limited catastrophe was to create total catastrophe for 50% of its classified employees. Fealty oaths were dissolved and a variety of trained research technicians were tossed out. Cut adrift, they became a further symptom of the near moment of importance for the system. Most of the severed technicians floundered, sank down, and were lost among the unclassified masses, but not all of them. So as we see, a corporation fires its employees as a response to a bad harbinger. But is this, an, is this not how it feels for us in 2006 and to, 2008? That the economy was, in a, was a massive game, that it made no sense, that people were winners or losers based on random chance. People were fired due to random ups and downs in the stock market or in the subprime mortgage market. It is all in the, it's all in the abstract. It might as well be a massive roulette game, the economy. When workers are interchangeable, replaceable, those who are fired or kept on is, you know, it's just by chance almost. Is there any resistance to this in the novel? Not very much, apparently. The system seems to work. There is ambition in people. Our main character, Bentley, wants to move up and through and, th and thought that assertiveness seems to deny the logic of Minimax. You also have the Prestonites, which is a strange cult that preserves the body of its founder. They're seen as crackbots who believe that there's a 10th planet out there. And once again, I'm going to point out, Dick is interested in the frontier and he puts a 10th planet out there. He puts a frontier focused cult who their main goal is to explore and settle the 10th planet. There, this seems to be a Promethean spirit in the face of the passivity of randomness. So with that, let's get into Minimax and what that is. So if you play role-playing games, you probably are familiar with Minmax as a way of kind of designing characters, right? So Minmax, this is from Wikipedia. Minmax is a decision rule used in decision game, game theory, or decision theory, game theory, statistics, and philosophy for minimized possible loss for a worst case scenario. When dealing with gains, it's referred to as a maximum to maximum, maximum to maximize the minimum game. Originally formulated for a two-player zero-sum game theory, covering both the cases where players take alternate moves and those where they make simultaneous moves, it has been extended to more complex games and to general decision-making and the presence of uncertainty. So I guess one example of this is the prisoner's dilemma, right? Where, you know, you're given the choice, do you rat on your friend or do you stay silent? Well, maximum benefit is if you rat on your friend and he stays silent, he goes to jail and you go free. That's maximum benefit, right? But if you both rat on each other, you're right, there's a chance you'll both get the full penalty. If you both stay silent, you know, maybe the worst is you both have to get a short penalty or something. So the prisoner's dilemma is kind of a min-max scenario. Um, but that's here in the novel, the full kind of culture of the society. Sorry, I had to stop there for a second because of loud traffic outside. I really need a soundproof room or something for doing these these episodes. Anyways, um, let's just get into the chapter summaries. We've been talking for over 20 minutes and or so and still haven't yet gotten to the chapter summaries. So in the first chapter, Bentley is fired from his job and he has cut adrift. Rather than despairing, he commits to getting a job in the quiz master's office. He sleeps with a bed girl and she gives him a lucky charm. He re-enters, he enters the office of the quiz master looking for a job. 
While he's there, he meets a green-eyed woman named Eleanor Stevens, who's the Quizmaster's private secretary, and in someone in a private feudal relationship with the Quizmaster. He also meets a man named Wakeman. They both interview him. Bentley wants to meet the Quizmaster, whose name is Varric, but he's denied for now. Um, we learn a little bit about the economy of the hills in the first chapter. Um, so this is what he says, Bentley. Don't you want to, your work to do some good? I stood the smell hanging around Ostry Lear as long as possible. The hills are supposed to be a separate and independent economic units. Actually, they're shipments and expense padding and doctor tax revenues. And it goes deeper than that. You know the hill slogan, service is good and better service is best. That's a laugh. You think the hills care about serving anybody? Instead of existing for the public good, they're parasites on the public. So we got a criticism of kind of the big corporation as existing for its own interests, but presenting itself as existing for the best benefits of, of the entire society. So it got a bit of an anti-corporate theme there, at least in Bentley. And of course, Bentley is a resentful ex-employee of, of one of the hills. Anyways, they hire him and they make his fealty, make him, make him give his fealty oath. When the news comes on that the bottle has shifted, it's not quite clear what happened, if the computer kind of rebalanced. or I don't think it's ever quite defined what the bottle really is. I imagine it as a kind of a big computer. But um, anyways, it announces a new quiz master. The new quiz master is a working class Prestonite named Cartwright. Cartwright. They trick Bentley into taking a private oath to Varric, having already known that the bottle twitched. So Bentley, who had hoped to go to work for the Quizmaster, is instead bound in fealty to a private citizen, Varric. In the next chapter, we meet Cartwright. He's described as a bit of a time capsule to the previous century, the 21st. Now, this is something Dick likes to do. He likes to have characters who are out of time, but always old-fashioned, always reactionary, whether they, you know, like, I think one of his favorite types of characters is the, is the radio repairman or the tinkerer. You can look at my review of Variable Man to get a sense of, of this. Um, Cartwright is also a Prestonite. He's going to a meeting of Prestonites as they're preparing a ship to go to explore and settle the 10th planet of the solar system. And we get here a bit of the frontier ethos that I think is such a key part of Dick's concepts. Um, Cartwright says, this is our moment our money and time have gone to. I wish John Preston were here. He'd be glad to see this. He knew it would come someday. He knew that there'd be a ship heading out past the colony planets, beyond the regions controlled for the directorate. In his heart, he was certain that man would seek new frontiers and freedom. Goodbye and good luck. You're on your way. Keep tight. Hold on to your charms and let Grove do the steering. Now, core members come to announce to Cartwright that he has been chosen. They are surprised that a working class guy still has his P card, his power card, and they reveal to him the brutal realities of his situation. No unk has ever been chosen by, by the bottle, had survived long as Quizmaster. Now, the third chapter is mostly exposition on the political system and the challenges Cartwright is facing. Now, we, we, we find out later on that Cartwright knows very well what he's doing, and he's kind of in on it, but he's still being kind of briefed for our benefit as readers, mostly. We learn how understaffed Cartwright will be because he has been abandoned by many who left with Varric, having made personal oaths to him, so he loses much of his staff. The average life expectancy for a quiz master is about two weeks because it takes more time than that to really get the security state and the teaks up and running. Um, usually it's easier to get an assassin together than it is to get the security 
apparatus together. Wakeman, however, is staying behind, uh, but he has little faith that Cartwright will survive very long. Cartwright, meanwhile, meets with a representative of Varric, who is leading the challenge committee and promising a million credits or dollars or whatever. I guess credits. A million credits to whoever kills Cartwright, which will allow the bottle to return to him as Quizmaster. So we le- I guess somehow the way the bottle works is it, it, it twitched. And if, if Cartwright is killed, they'll twitch back to Varric, I guess. Um, maybe that'll be clear later in the novel. So the man that Cartwright meets is this guy, Herb Moore. And Herb Moore, he works for Varric. And he mostly spends his time mocking Cartwright, saying essentially, you're not going to live very long. He mocks his origin as an unclassified and um, just doesn't think he's just warning him like you're going to be dead soon so it's all kind of trolling him because there's not much Cartwright can do he's stuck in this position as Quizmaster um, Moore trolls him for being a Prestonite too and finally telling him that the system is designed to get people like him out of office as quickly as possible Cartwright however is strangely optimistic about his chances and that's our first clue that maybe Cartwright is has more control over the situation than, than everyone else thinks now, if you've read many Philip K. Dick novels, you might be aware of this setup. A common man is put into a position of power and turns out to be smarter than the system in some way. The commoner is the radical outsider who disrupts or can take advantage of well-established institutions. This novel is actually in some ways the opposite of The Variable Man. In The Variable Man, you have total order disrupted by a random chaos agent. And here you have a random system disrupted by a schemer or a planner. Um, well, that does it for the opening par- chapters, paragraphs of Solar Lottery. I'll provide another four or five episodes on this novel. Um, usually the novels are thematically top-heavy, so this, chap- this episode may be a little bit longer than later um, chapters, but we'll see. They usually early chapters set up the interesting ideas of the novel, and then they'll become more plot-heavy later on. So with that, I'll see you next time uh, we'll, we'll, when we'll look at another three chapters of of Solar Lottery. Thanks so much for listening. Bad luck, seven come eleven, and she could be mine. Lucky lady, and I'm gonna find love coming on the bottom line. I've been to the table, and I've lost it all before.